0: If you would at this time, I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We have the opportunity at this time of opening up to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the final chapter of Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth. And the subject that we come together to this morning is the subject of discipline. Discipline. Now, I have to be quite honest. Discipline is not a particular subject I enjoy and it's not often pleasant for the recipient of discipline either. In fact, it says over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And certainly it's painful to the recipient, but I would go on to say that discipline is painful to the one that is carrying it out as well. To have to execute discipline, to have to carry out justice upon someone who has done wrong and needs to receive the consequences of their actions. It is not pleasant. It is not easy. And not only is it not easy to carry it out, but it's not even easy in many cases to talk about it. And yet scripture at this point in Paul's letter tells us that discipline is a necessary function of the local church. And for those of you who are parents, you are not unfamiliar with the concept of discipline in the home. We'll be seeing... Certainly the the principles of discipline in this passage uh, as a church, but certainly I would also encourage you to think about how does this apply in my own home? How does this apply in my family? Because discipline is a gift from God to help prevent greater pain. Discipline is painful. It's painful to experience. It's painful to talk about, but it is necessary. When a child receives a vaccination, they're going to receive a small prick That child might even cry from the pain of the needle. But that temporary pain is to prevent long-term suffering, right? And discipline is like the prick of a needle. It causes temporary pain, but hopefully it will help to avoid much worse long-term suffering. We want to avoid that kind of long-term suffering in this life and even more profoundly in the life to come. And so God has given the church, God has given the home a place for discipline, uh, and He disciplines those whom He loves. We're going to see several aspects of discipline this morning that come out of this text, uh, beginning with the spirit of discipline. We're going to see the spirit of discipline in verse 1, then the sting of discipline in verse 2. We'll look briefly at the source of discipline. uh, Being Jesus Christ as the ultimate authority who is carrying out and using us to carry out discipline in a home or in a church. And then lastly, we will consider ways to safeguard against discipline. He's given us the gift of self-examination so that we would avoid the necessity of discipline. God sort of uh, cranking up the heat or ratcheting up the tension of, of punishment because of our sin. Let me go ahead and read the passage for us. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we were looking at verses 20 and 21 of the previous chapter, and Paul was talking about how he was almost afraid to come back to the city because of what he was going to find when he got there. And not because of what he knew that the average Corinthian in town was going to be participating in. He knew that they were sinners. He knew that they were acting upon their sinful impulses. But he was particularly concerned about those who claimed to be followers of Christ that were not living consistently with that testimony. He was afraid he was going to come in and instead of seeing the kind of ingredients of a healthy church that you would hope to see of love and joy and peace and obedience and fruitfulness, he was afraid that he was going to find a lack of peace and a lack of purity. And he mentioned some of the particular issues he had seen in the church before and that he was hearing word were still going on. Things like quarreling, jealousy, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so forth. So when he comes to chapter 13, verse 1, he's continuing that thought of his concern about returning to the church, what he might find there, and if necessary, that he will take the next step and course of action, which would be discipline. In 13.1, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, But in dealing with you, we will live by him, with him, by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. We notice first of all the spirit of discipline as we think about this theme in this passage. The spirit of discipline. And I would say that there are two key ideas of Paul's spirit when it comes to discipline. There's a spirit of love, but there's also a spirit of firmness. And both of those are evident in the text. You know, it is possible that at some point in the future, someone in this local church fellowship will have to come under church discipline. I I dread the thought of the day. I hope and pray it will not occur. But the fact that Paul talks about discipline here in Corinthians, the fact that he talked about it in his first letter to the Corinthians, The fact that Jesus talked about it, and we'll look in a moment at what he has to say about discipline, is just the reality that we live in a sinful world, and even within the church, leaven can grow, and that leaven can have a destructive influence that must be dealt with firmly. It's important for us, then, as we think about discipline in the church, or even parents, your discipline in the home, that we do it in the right spirit, And it needs to be done in both the spirit of love and also, at the same time, a spirit of firmness. Notice Paul's spirit of love as he's talking about some very hard, very heavy subjects here. He's doing it with the utmost care and compassion and love. He has waited till the very end of his letter to bring up these kinds of firm and serious threats. He's talked about his great love for the church he began by greeting them with a customary greeting to the church of God in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. He spoke words of blessing and grace upon them at the beginning of his letter, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He went on to talk about God's great comfort. He went on to talk about how he had already seen evidence of grace and how they had repented from some of the former sins and responded positively to a severe letter that he had written. He talked about the power of the gospel and how we are simply jars of clay that contain the uh, inestimable price of the gospel inside of us. He talked about how they had wanted to give to the saints who were in need in Jerusalem and he was stirring them up to complete what they had pledged that they they had promised to do. Over and over again, we have seen his pastoral care, his fatherly love for this church, and he's about to conclude with a beautiful benediction in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, friend, as he talks about discipline, as he refers to the idea of strictness, sternness, sharpness, rebuke, In all of these things, it's within the context of love. And, child, when you are under the discipline of your parents, and church member, if you are under the discipline of the church, recognize that it is not out of hatred, it is not out of anger, it is not out of revenge, it is out of a love that God has given to those who are over you that you are experiencing pain. It's not because they want to hurt you. It's actually because they want to do the very opposite of that. They want to help you. They care about your well-being. They care about your health. Listen to Paul's great love that's expressed through other letters that he wrote. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, you we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This week, we, as a church, celebrated a newborn in our church family. Matt and Shauna, Hannah praise God and answer to prayer, they delivered little baby Lucas, and uh, he was able to come home from the hospital just last night. He spent a couple extra days in the hospital. he was struggling with some jaundice, he was born just a little premature, but he 's doing well. the family 's doing well and I uh, happened to be there when the nurse came into the room, had set up that UV light you know that they put the baby under to help them to overcome and fight off the jaundice and And as Lucas was laying there in that little tub and the light was shining on top of him, Shauna was there in the hospital bed and she said, do you know how hard it is for a mom to be over here while my baby's over there? Do you know how this is against every grain of my being right now? I want to hold that baby. I want to nurse that baby and cuddle. The next day I went back and uh, Shauna went home to get washed up and get some new clothes and to pick up the kids at school and still Lucas was there under the light. I said, has he been like under that all the time, even at night? Matt's like, he's been exactly in that same place since you he were here yesterday. He hasn't moved. But uh, even the nurse noticed how when mama wasn't around, he was fidgety. He, was, he wasn't crying, but he was just longing for the presence of his mother And every time that Lucas would get into mom's arms, he would just be completely relaxed and at ease because already there's a bond between mother and son. Paul actually uses very unique language and describes himself like a nursing mom in 1 Thessalonians because there's really probably no more tender, intimate picture of love and care and compassion and bonding than there is between a mother and her son, a newborn child, He says he was affectionately desirous for them. And that must be the case. Parent, before you discipline your child, church, before it becomes necessary that we discipline a person in unrepentant sin in the church, it first must be necessary that we love them and that they know our love for them and that the actions speak louder than the words that we can say we love them, but it's backed up by how we have consistently treated them with love as the years have gone by. Philippians 4, Paul said to the Philippian church, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And here, even as Paul is talking about discipline, he puts it within a larger context of love and compassion and care and concern. He said over in the previous chapter, Verse 19 of chapter 12. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves, do you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your what? Upbuilding. Everything that we have said up to this point in the first 12 chapters, he says to the church, is for your upbuilding. It is for your welfare. It is for your health and your strength. It's not to tear you down. It's to build you up. As we come over to chapter 13, we see again his great love and desire for the church. He says in 13.9, we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. You see, that's what he wants. He wants what is broken to be mended and made well and whole once again. In the very next verse, verse 10, For this reason I write these things while I'm away, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. See, Paul ministers with a spirit of love. And whenever we talk about discipline, we must make sure that we are not disciplining out of anger. We're not disciplining out of revenge. There may be times, and I'm thinking for a moment as a parent, that you're hot you're angry you're upset at what has happened and the damage and the inconvenience that it has caused at that moment be very very careful that you do not discipline out of anger we are never to discipline out of anger we are to discipline out of love we are to discipline out of their well-being and so we may have to take a step back And give them a few moments to think about what they've done and for us to have a few moments to collect our thoughts and to go to God in prayer that He would help us to exercise love and self-control as we carry out His command to discipline our child. We need to have a spirit of love. But secondly, we can't just have love in its sort of touchy-feely, comforting way all the time. Love is sometimes what? Tough. Love is sometimes... Tough. And so we need to have a spirit of firmness, a kind of solemnity. There needs to be orderliness to how we carry out love, and even when necessary, that we discipline a child or a wayward member of the church. This is not a laughing matter. This is not pleasant. It's not something we want to do, but it is something that, in our obedience to God, for the sake of holiness and the well being of the person who is in sin, we are called to discipline. Proverbs 22, verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. What in the world is going to drive that folly, that foolish, anti-God kind of thinking, a self-centered worldview, what is going to drive that out of a child? Well, Proverbs twenty two fifteen says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod, of, uh, the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And I stand before you as living testimony that that is true. My parents did not withhold the rod when necessary, and I survived. And at the time, did I like it? Absolutely not. But you know what? I knew that my parents loved me, and I knew that they loved God, and I knew somehow that they were doing this to help me to grow, and to be quite honest, that I deserved it most of the time. And I often learned my lesson and tried not to repeat that kind of folly. So the rod of correction was driving out self centered, foolish, anti God, unbiblical thinking and actions. If you spare the rod, you do what? You spoil the child. You're not helping the child. You're hurting the child if you spare the rod of discipline in the home or in the church and you think, I'm just going to love them. I'm going to be their best friend and their buddy. I'm never going to say anything to critique them. I'm just going to help them to discover who they are. Friend, you are doing so much damage. They need the folly driven out of them. It must be done in a spirit of love. But there is firmness that comes along with that as well. He said back in chapter 12, verse 20, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. I mean, that's, that's a dad's threat right there. <laughs> I'm afraid when I come, you're not going to like what you see because he is going to have to be firm, strict, solemn, exercising discipline. In verse 2, I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit that if I come again, I will not spare them but he will have to exert the rod. We'll come back to that in just a moment under the, uh, the pain or the sting of discipline. Notice in verse 1 how church discipline takes on an almost a courtroom feel to it. Did you notice that? Uh, this is the third time I'm coming to you and he says there at the second half of verse 1, every charge must be established, how? By the evidence of who two or three witnesses i mean we could unpack that and just talk about that uh, all by itself probably for multiple weeks but you notice how there's courtroom kind of language here there's structure there's order There's detail that is given that a charge must be established. When you're talking about disciplining a child or disciplining a wayward church member, it's not to just be done kind of flippantly or over no particular reason. It's to be done when there's a clear biblical violation and you can point to chapter and verse and say, this is what the Bible says is true of a Christian. And I don't see this in your life. In fact, I see just the opposite. Exhibit 1, Exhibit 2, Exhibit 3, I'm seeing signs that don't seem to match up with what the Bible says a Christian should be doing, how they should be talking, how they should be acting. I'm not seeing evidence of the Spirit of God in your life. Every charge, you see there are charges that are laid forward and they are established by evidence as though it were in the court of law. And it can't simply be a he said, she said kind of a thing. There has to be multiple witnesses. So church discipline begins one-on-one, just going and confronting a brother or sister in private. And certainly in the home, it's appropriate as much as possible for a parent to take that child aside and to set them down on the floor or set them down on the bed and talk to them in a discreet way that respects who they are. Not to shame them or embarrass them in front of the other siblings, but, but to talk with them, to get their attention and to lay out the evidence of what just happened. Why did that happen? why do you think maybe you said what you just said or why you did what you just did? And show them from Scripture why that is dishonoring to God. It's displeasing to Him. And He says that we must punish where there is unrepentant sin. Two or three witnesses in the church is a reminder that it's not enough just to have one person make some kind of an accusation. But there should be multiple people, not just because they heard it from the first source, but they've seen it for themselves. Multiple witnesses that can affirm that everything is true. And and friend, that way when you are approached, you can't say, well, that's just your opinion. You know, I have my way, you have your way. What's the big deal? But when two people come before you or three people come before you, and particularly these should be spirit-led, biblically informed, godly men or women that approach you and say, brother, sister, we're just concerned We're concerned by what we're seeing you post online. We're concerned about who we hear you're hanging out with. We're concerned about the lifestyle that it appears that you're practicing in, things that you're saying, places you're going. These things are not fitting of a believer. We're concerned for you. Let us know what's going on here. Because if we're understanding correctly and seeing this, this is not what a Christian should be doing. Two or three witnesses go, and friend, at that point, your responsibility is listen to them. And not to be defensive, not to shift the blame, but if multiple God-led, Spirit-filled people are seeing these kinds of concerning signs in your life, then you ought to listen. Shut up and stop making excuses and listen to what they're saying to you. These witnesses are here to help you. They are laying out evidence, but it's necessary for you to humble yourself and listen and look at the scripture and ask God to examine, is there maybe something I've been blind to? Have maybe I fallen into a pattern of sin and not even realized it? I mean, typically you're not in sin because you think you're sinning. Typically you're in sin because you think it's okay. But when two or three witnesses come to you, the collective weight of their witness is to slow you down and to reconsider what's going on in your life. And know that they have your well-being in mind. Let me just quickly point out how this is a reference to what Jesus describes in more detail over in Matthew 18. Keep your finger here in 2 Corinthians 13. If you would, just look at Matthew 18 for just a moment where Jesus introduces the idea of church discipline. And this is fascinating because it's even before the church has officially been established. This is before Pentecost. There's a synagogue during this time. There's a temple during this time. But the church is still something that waits in the future. And yet Jesus is already concerned about the purity and the integrity of his church. He said two chapters earlier, I will build my church. He's looking forward to the building of the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And here in chapter 18, he then is giving instructions of how he wants to preserve the purity and the unity of the church. In 1815, and this is for all of us, okay? This is a command for all of us. If your brother sins against you, brother or sister, okay? This is either, uh, it could be a man, it could be a woman, anybody who is claiming and professing the name of Jesus Christ. If your brother sins against you, what are you to do? Go. Go. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't tell somebody else. If your brother or sister sins against you, Jesus says, go go. And tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, guess what you've just done? You've gained your brother. Much as Paul said over in 2 Corinthians 13, your restoration is what we pray for. You see, all confrontation and all discipline is for the purpose of restoration. If you go in private and you talk with that brother or sister and they repent of their sin and they are brought to their senses, you've gained them back and you don't need to proceed to the next step in church discipline. Verse 16, but notice, what if he doesn't listen? If he doesn't listen, Jesus says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of what? two or three witnesses exactly the same thing that Paul said and this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 19 the principle of in the court of law you can never just have one testimony against another A he said she said kind of a scenario there must be multiple witnesses that particularly as they begin to investigate this a little bit they realize no there's a serious problem here you can see how in the home it's so helpful when God, uh, God's design of a husband and a wife are living together in unity and they're shepherding their children together because by the very fact that a child is disciplined in the kind of uh, nuclear home, the, the, the family unit of a husband and a wife or a mommy and a daddy with children, that child, when he or she is under discipline, he has automatically two witnesses that are telling him or her that this is wrong. It's not just because that child thinks, well, you just don't like what I'm doing, or you just like my brother or sister better than me. But no, when mom and dad say together, we love you, and God has put us to shepherd over you and care for you, and we together are concerned what you're doing makes mommy and daddy very sad. And more importantly, it makes God sad. And he's told us that we must discipline you to help you to grow in godliness to drive out the foolishness that is there. The two or three witnesses principle applies in the home as well as it does in the church. But what if they still don't listen? Verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile would be a non-Jew, and often this was a reference to those who were pagan those who are not followers of the true God of Israel, the God of Scripture. Someone who is a Gentile or a tax collector is someone who is still living in unrepentant sin. He's saying treat them as though they are no longer a believer. Now, can you and I see the heart? No. But what we can do is based upon someone's actions and someone's fruit, if there is an ongoing pattern of repentant, habitual, unrepentant habitual sin and that person will not listen to the single person that comes and not listen to the two or three that come and, and then won't even listen to the church appealing and praying for and calling that person back to repentance, at that point Jesus says, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. They are no longer welcome to take of what we took this morning, the bread and the cup. They're not welcome to participate in fellowship together in the Lord's Supper until they have repented of that sin. That is out of love. And is there a sting? Yes. But that's the whole point is that it would get their attention and that the small sting of discipline would wake them up and protect them from the much greater sting of God's judgment upon them. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's a a beautiful statement, isn't it? We often think about that in the context of prayer, of how when we gather together, even just two or three, there's a sweet fellowship that we have in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is there present with us, maybe in some profound way. But actually, that verse that often is quoted where two or three are gathered together. He's there in, in our midst. That's actually a reference to church discipline. That Christ is saying, I will be there with you. Now, this leads to an important question. How do we know when to proceed and approach a person in confrontation or discipline? How do we know when to proceed with confrontation and discipline? And let me give you a few reasons not to confront someone, a, a few reasons not to to confront someone you know it says over in first peter chapter 4 that love covers a multitude of sins there are going to be a multitude a litany of different kinds of sins minor infractions spiritual misdemeanors if you will these are just there are they a sin yes Okay? We're not denying that they're not a sin and that they're not serious before God. But love is going to cover those things like a blanket, like a coat. It's just going to cover it up and you're just not going to look at them. And you're not going to focus on them and you're not going to keep bringing them up. Jesus says somewhere else, He says, yeah, look, "You look, you've got to take the log out of your own eye before you can remove the speck from someone else. Some of us are just too quick to point out the sins in other people. We're far too judgmental. We're far too focused on all the tiny little infractions. That's not our responsibility. So if you're noticing just small sins, uh, little issues that maybe bug you, they irritate you, you notice it and you think, ah, man, they shouldn't be doing that. In many cases, love is just going to cover that. You can pray for them. You can model for them what godly behavior looks like. You can encourage them and mentor them and disciple them to grow in that area. Maybe when the time comes and the relationship is in an appropriate place, you can talk about, you know what, I've just noticed that you have a habit here and you may not even realize it, but, but let me help you. Or It, just, it, it burdens me and I, and I feel like I need to bring this up to your attention. But love is going to cover a multitude of sins and there are many things that happen in the home and in the church. You just need to look past and not make a big deal out of. Let God deal with it, okay? I would also say when it comes to the things not to confront over, there are many areas that we need to forgive. We just need to forgive. If they have hurt us privately, and they haven't necessarily done a lot of damage to other people, Christ just calls us to turn the other cheek, somebody steals from us to give them our other tunic as well to just just to love people and be quick to forgive and to uh, tolerate a lot particularly when we are the one that has been the victim of it rather than holding on to those different grievances that we have i know we have to be careful about talking about different degrees of sin because all sin is um, wicked all sin is dishonoring to god all sin is worthy of eternal judgment in hell but i think that the bible does indicate that some sins have a a more heavy consequence than other sins. And so if there are some sins that are just sort of relatively minor, particularly sins that are involving areas of omission, areas of omission, you know, there's two basic kinds of sins, right? There's sins of commission where you're committing an active sin against God or someone else. And then there's sins of omission where you're failing to live up to the standard that God has called you to. One of the commands that God gives to us is to give thanks in everything, right? Well, if you really wanted to, you could probably point out multiple times in my life, in my day, where I'm not giving thanks in everything. It may not necessarily be cause for, uh, for church discipline, Uh, Maybe if you notice that there's a complaining spirit, it would be appropriate to go and approach me and to talk to me about that issue. You know, I just don't hear much praise or thankfulness out of your heart and out of your mouth. I I hear you gripe and complain. You always seem to be moaning about something going on and I just don't hear a lot of praise. I mean, isn't God good to you? Oh yeah, you're right. You know, it it might be appropriate to talk to them, but is that necessarily going to be a sin of omission like that going to lead to church discipline? Probably not. If the sin is a one-time offense... In many cases, just let love cover that. Pray for the person, pray with them, help them to move on. If it's a matter of progressive sanctification where you're just seeing areas where maturity needs to take place, take a step back. Don't play the Holy Spirit. Let God grow them. Aren't you thankful God has been patient with you? Are you equally patient with other people like he has been with you? I mean, you're where you are today because God has been patient for years in your life. And then you see a problem that took you 50 years to sort out and you want to fix it in them for tomorrow. That's just what we all tend to do is we see the sin in other people and we are called to show love and forbearance and be patient and forgive one another and to overlook... Many of the small offenses that people are guilty of, recognizing we are just as if not more guilty in many cases. Those are reasons not to immediately confront over sin. But let me give you a few reasons that perhaps you should proceed with Jesus' formula of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18 and what he says and Paul over here in 2 Corinthians 13. The church is commanded to confront sin and patiently admonish those who are unruly. So if we're talking about somebody who is unruly, that is, there is a rebellious spirit where they're kicking against God and His Word and they're unresponsive to the teaching of the truth, then it may be important for us to proceed with discipline in the home or with the church. If you've prayed over the matter, and you have clear biblical evidence that could stand up in the court of law as we've seen in 2 Corinthians 13.1, if there's clear, repeated evidence and testimony that this person is not seeming to live in a way that is pleasing to God, then it may be time to approach them and to confront them. Make sure that you have examined your motives and that to the best of your knowledge, your motives are pure and your method is going to be gentle. Then it may be time to initiate step one of church discipline to go to them in private if you have an adequate relationship with that person that you know them well and they know you well and they understand the context of love already that it may be time to go to them and confront them particularly if the sin involves areas of commission of active disobedience transgression and rebellion against god then go and talk to that person pray for them, ask for help. If the sin is immoral and habitual in nature, if it is listed amongst the things that are mentioned in the previous chapter, repetitive quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder, impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality, those kinds of things. If a person remains in a pattern, unrepentant, then those would be all subject to confrontation and ultimately to discipline. So yes, we should love them, but we should love them enough when necessary to bring up a matter of deep concern. That's what we would call the spirit of discipline. But secondly, we move to the sting of discipline. I'm gonna go through these next couple points very quickly here, and then I wanna look for a few moments at the idea of self-examination. The sting of discipline comes up in verse two where Paul says, if I come again, I will not spare them. And again, he said over in chapter 12, verse 20, you may find me not as I wish. In verse 10, he says, for this reason I write uh, while I'm away that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. Severe, that word means to be sharp, to be abrupt. It's used only here and one other place in the entire New Testament. That's in Titus chapter 1, where Paul refers to those who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. He says they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. And then he says this, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. You see, there's a sharpness. There's a sting to it. There's an abruptness to it. It must get their attention. It must kind of shake them back to their senses that they recognize the direction that they're going. They're wandering away like a sheep and they're in grave danger if they don't change soon. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, "'What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod?' Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. And he will do everything he can to utilize uh, love and gentleness. But the time comes, he says, where if necessary, I will use the rod. In Psalm 32, David speaks of a time where he was an unrepentant sin after committing adultery with Bathsheba and then conspiring to kill her husband to try and cover up his act. David, of course, thankfully repents of that sin. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful description of his confession and brokenness and repentance before God. But listen to this. In Psalm 32, he said, Day and night, your hand, O Lord, was heavy upon me. That's the sting of discipline. Hebrews 12, the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Is it going to hurt? Yes. Do we like that it hurts? No, it's not that we enjoy the pain that is inflicted, but the pain is necessary to accomplish the greater good. Oftentimes, God disciplines. Even before a parent disciplines or a church disciplines, oftentimes God is the one who just carries out discipline through trials and tribulations and suffering. C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, He speaks to us in our work. He shouts at us in our pain. That sting of discipline. You understand when there's pain, all of a sudden it's like God has your full attention. And you begin to listen to his word and to his guidance and instruction. That's the sting of discipline. We are not surprised that it is painful, but the purpose of pain is to bring about repentance restoration and growth thirdly the source of discipline just briefly in verses three and four paul brings up the fact again that the church is struggling with whether paul is an authentic apostle or not and he says that since you seek proof that christ is speaking in me that's what they've been asking for they want to see proof they want to see proof earlier he said you are my proof church he says you are my proof you are my letter of authenticity Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He says, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Jesus was weak for a while, wasn't He? He chose to be weak. He was crucified in weakness. But He now lives by the power of God. And He says, we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live by Him with the power of God. I think what's happening here is the church was mistaking the gentleness of Paul as weakness they were mistaking his love and his tenderness and his affection as weakness and the false teachers were convincing the Corinthian church that Paul is weak he can't possibly represent Christ and yet Paul says look at Jesus even Jesus was weak for a season of time he was weak as he willfully humbled himself and went to the cross and died for you he was weak in that moment where he was presenting himself as the broken bread and the cup of the new covenant but now he is strong and paul says if necessary i will come in the same kind of strength as jesus has i bring this up as the source of discipline friend because when we are under confrontation or discipline God wants us to understand that is not from the person who is inflicting the correction. It's from Jesus himself. Jesus has entrusted his word and he has entrusted the responsibility of confrontation to those who love him. So if somebody comes to you and says, brother, sister, I'm concerned. I see this and it appears to be a pattern of sin. Have you made this right with God? Do you recognize the pathway that you're going? Recognize that that's not just simply a person in their own opinion or feeling talking that way. That is Jesus talking to you. That is Jesus talking to you through His Word. If there is evidence that you are not responding to Scripture, that is not just a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a brother or a sister or a parent. That is Jesus trying to get your attention. And to call you back to repentance. I believe that's what Jesus means when he says over there in uh, Matthew chapter 16, and then again in chapter 18, he says to Peter and then he says to the apostles that he has given them the keys to the kingdom. Those keys are the authority to lock and unlock. And he says, whatever you bound on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Whatever you declare on earth is really a reflection of what Christ has already declared in heaven beforehand. So when we proclaim the gospel and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved and have the gift of eternal life. We are making a promise based upon the authority of Jesus Christ who has given us the keys to make that statement. And when we say, friend there's sin in your life don't you recognize it don't you see how this falls short of the glory of god and the standard of god's word there is a warning that to continue in the sin is to go down a path you don't want to go down you're not showing evidence of christ in your life we must withhold the blessing of fellowship and communion as a church to affirm your testimony of faith that also is part of the authority that christ has granted to a church and we must in obedience and love carry that out The source of discipline is not ultimately a mom or a dad in the home. It's not ultimately a pastor or elders in a church. Ultimately, it is Christ himself out of his love for his people. And he wants to see them grow in the Lord. Kids, even think about how one of the verses that God wrote specifically to you is in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, children, obey what? Your parents in the Lord. So when you obey mom and dad, you're doing that, yeah, to make them happy and so that you don't get in trouble. But even more importantly, you're doing that to honor the Lord. Jesus has put your mom and dad in charge over you to care for you and sometimes even to discipline you. The same in the church, that shepherds, overseers are there to care for and to protect as shepherds. Shepherds are there to protect the the body, the flock and to chase after those who are becoming wayward that's the source of discipline it comes ultimately from christ himself but then lastly let me share for just a moment the safeguard of discipline the safeguard of discipline how do we avoid this unpleasant experience of discipline and i believe that paul answers that question in verse 5 where he says examine yourselves examine to see whether you are in the faith and he even goes on to use another word test yourselves Or don't you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? When he says examine yourselves, he's referring to a process of self-examination, to sort of do an inventory, to look over your heart, over your life, to look at what you've been saying how you've been acting, where you've been going, who you've been spending time with. I mean, this might even be as simple as, what have I been looking at on the internet? What's been coming out of my mouth lately? What decisions have I made recently? Are they pleasing to God? How much time am I spending in the Word and in prayer? There's a number of different kinds of uh, of diagnostic questions that we can just simply ask to examine ourselves, and these uh, will safeguard us against Discipline, Haggai chapter 1, the people of Israel had returned to the promised land, but they hadn't rebuilt the temple and uh, taken care of, of following the law. And so in Haggai, the prophet says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into, the, into a bag with holes." what's he saying he's saying you're under discipline you're being punished by god he says consider your ways consider your ways do some self-examination figure out why this is happening and when we repent of our sins god is so quick and gracious to flood us with his mercy and grace the purpose of self-examination is to avoid further discipline he's saying to the church check yourselves over Do a spiritual inventory. See whether you are in the faith. And he believes that they are, by the way. He believes that they will pass this test. But what he's doing is saying this. You want to know whether I am truly an apostle of Jesus Christ? Just look at your own life. Are you really a Christian? Because if you are a Christian, who's the one that led you to Christ? Paul did, right? So by examining themselves and proving that they are of the faith, he is also saying you will see that I too am of the faith and it will uh, liberate his own uh, reputation as an apostle of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that theme a little bit um, in our next time together, look a little bit more at the idea of self-examination. But it's appropriate as we have taken time to take the Lord's Supper today and in our daily lives to think about the importance of self-examination, inspecting ourselves, asking a series of diagnostic questions that would help us to see if we are of the faith. Jonathan Edwards wrote a a book called The Necessity of Self-Examination. Let me just read for you a few of the questions that he included. And and you can find these online, um, but it's just a very helpful uh, list. Maybe I'll even email this out to you guys this week. But just listen to these questions because they can be helpful in times where we're preparing for the Lord's Supper, uh, in times where we just maybe have uh, gotten a little lax and let our guard down. Questions like this. Is it important for me to know whether or not I'm in a state of sin? Do I live in the gratification of some lust, either in thought or in deed? Am I sinning against the light of my conscience in some way by going on in known sin? Have I invented ways of justifying my sinful practice, calling them by more virtuous titles or rationalizing them in any way? Do I regularly ask friends and loved ones to show me the faults I can't see in myself? Do I allow myself to commit sin because it is not widely condemned among my fellow man or because I see it done by my peers? In other words, you're doing what you're seeing other people do and because they do it and everybody's doing it, it must be right. Am I selective in my obedience? Do I pick and choose which parts of my duty I will perform neglecting those which are more distasteful to me? Do I set aside time regularly to read and meditate on the Word of God? Am I doing anything which might be considered a gray area, things that godly brothers would view as a way of sin? When I look upon this with the utmost strictness, can I see any sin in it? Here's a couple more. Do I live in any way that I might regret when I lie on my deathbed? Is there anything I'm doing that I would not want to be caught doing If Christ were to return at this moment, so those are helpful self examination questions that God has given to us to see if we are of the faith. And the hope is that we would pass the test and that we would confirm the life of Christ in us. Parents, I I pray for you that God would help you to discipline in love, but also, when necessary, in firmness. It's not an easy task but the reward is beyond measure. Church, we're all in this together. We're called to love one another. We're called to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens. If someone is caught in a trespass, we go in a spirit of gentleness. In many cases, love is just going to overlook that sin. But if there's an ongoing repeated pattern, may God give us the courage to obey Him and confront that person and help them to come back from their waywardness let's bow in prayer as the ushers come forward father thanks for your word thank you for the joyful passages but also for the heavy passages lord that they have a purpose in helping us as well lord i just again am so grateful for the love that my parents had for me that they were willing to discipline me when necessary give our parents courage to know the age-appropriate ways to talk with their kids to work with their kids and lead them toward righteousness to drive out that heart of folly that we are born in as wicked reprobates in this world. We need your cleansing and forgiveness, and we know only the Spirit of God has the power to change a person. I pray that your Spirit would work in a mighty way in the hearts of our little ones in this congregation. We love them so much. As a church, Lord, we, we, we hope and we, we wish that we would never have to think about discipline or carry it out. But whatever that looks like, Lord, I pray that we would do it in a way that is godly, reflecting the principles that Paul shows us here in Corinthians and also that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 18. Let us always do it in love, a spirit of gentleness, and with a hope and prayer of restoration.